what's with all this bowing? I do believe all this pomp and circumstance is useless. Who wants to be bothered with all this ceremony and tradition anyway? So why, oh why, do I have to pretend that I am in ancient Japan? It just seems so horrid. I live in America! I bow to no one. Find out in today's episode as we address the necessity of the formality found in traditional Japanese martial arts in the Western world. From the dojo to the octagon, we bring you the Jiu-Jitsu Master Podcast! Welcome to another edition of the Jiu-Jitsu Master Podcast. This is your co-host, Sri. And today, we're featuring co-host Shihan Russell St. Hilaire, 7th degree black belt of Kobukai Jiu-Jitsu. How are you doing today, Shihan? I am doing fantastic. How about you three? I'm doing great. Really excited today. We have a special guest, Senpai Chris Richards, 2nd degree black belt in Kobukai Jiu-Jitsu, joining us today. Talk about the formalities of the dojo in today's times and why we have to do them. Senpai, welcome to the show. Thank you, Sri. Great to be here. Without further ado, I'll turn it over to you, Senpai. Excellent. Thank you, Shri. Uh, you know, Shion, thank you so much for having me on here today. Oh, my know, pleasure. These are some things I know that you and I have talked about over God, the over a decade I've been doing jiu-jitsu. And I just kind of put together a list of questions. These are things that I know you've heard a thousand times over and things I get from a lot of our students, too. And I think it's important for them to understand them. So looking forward to kind of peeling back the onion a little bit and talking about Dojo etiquette, the why behind a lot of the things we do, and kind of just talk about the history too. Sure, love to. One of my All favorite right. subjects. <laughs> awesome. So, starting out, could you tell us a little bit about the traditional Japanese dojo in ancient times? If we go way back to you know when the samurai were around and there were still warring clans, depending on where you were in the country is sort of what your dojo was going to be like. So, if you were in the middle of the country uh, where it's mountainous or maybe in the north. So you have, you know, you have the four seasons, it's winter. You're, you're likely going to do some portion of your training outside. And then when it gets cold, you know, you're going to have a building where you train inside. And part of that would probably be a wooden floor because you're doing your sword and your spear and other work. And then part of it would be matted, right? They would probably pile up some tatami mats to take up the shock of being, you know, thrown to the ground if they were practicing, you know, unarmed or defense against small weapons, those type of things. If you were more in the south of Japan, it can get really, really hot and it stays hot for a long time. A lot of that training was probably outside. They would have just put tatamis on the ground and they would have worked out. Maybe some of the real rugged schools wouldn't have even put down tatami. They'd just throw each other down on the ground when they had to. So, <laughs> and, and that stayed the same pretty much until they disbanded the, the samurai in the 1800s, late 1800s. Then they weren't able to practice these things for war. Modern firearms and stuff had come in. Western culture had come in. So a lot of these dojos were really just a place where they were trying to preserve tradition of the martial arts. And they were coming up with kata and just ways to preserve from generation to generation. Because they knew they weren't going to be doing it on the battlefield anymore. At least that's what they thought at the time. And so they, they would just have these training halls. Sometimes things got a little bit out of control. So the government stepped in and they actually created some government training halls, which still exist in, in Japan today, um, for the various Ryu to get together and, and practice with their students. So that's kind of how it was uh, until we moved into the 20th century. 
Awesome. Outstanding. Looking at it, when you go into your traditional dojo, especially uh, Kobukai, definitely very formal. Can you tell me about the hierarchy? You know, senseis and how the various senseis line up, the senpais, their position to the sensei? Sure. And let me talk first why. Why they even bother doing that. Where you sit in a dojo or what uniform you're wearing or the belt that you're wearing or what language you use is relatively irrelevant to your ability to execute a self-defense move, right? Mm -hmm. That's training, right? That's, that's all training. However, if you think about the modern military and the word martial art, right, basically means military arts. If you think about the modern military, there's a hierarchy and a certain way people act and certain etiquette because these are dangerous people with weapons and a lot of responsibility and they know how to kill people and this hierarchy is, is is to kind of keep internal order, right? And to keep focus on the mission at hand, on the training that's needed for that. Every soldier can't know every nuance of what's going to happen on the battlefield, right? That's for people taking a more strategic viewpoint. And these higher leaders are going to look at the overall strategy for a battlefield. That's going to go down to their commanders so that they can each enact a piece of that strategy right down to the foot soldier who's got the mission at hand is to go forward and take that hill or that field or kill the enemy, whatever it is. That military hierarchy is really what is being reflected in a traditional dojo. If you look at how um, the samurai operated, and they were military units, essentially, they would have clan leader, essentially, as their commander, their overall like general. And then they would have various shoguns under, underneath that, right? So these are a little bit lower level officers, and then you know it would kind of go all the way down to, to the foot soldier. When you're seeing a dojo, and you're seeing like the instructor sitting up front, and then you're seeing you know a line of the the next senior black belts to his left, and then rows of people according to their rank in the dojo. What we're really reflecting is how the uh, samurai would have sat in a room with all of the military you know, leaders and, and all the formalities around a, a military structure. When it's done correctly in a dojo, it's done specifically for that reason. It's, it's really not necessarily about who's better or any of that kind of stuff. It, it's really about leadership groups and how they think about what goes on in the dojo. When you're a student, you're going to come in, you're like, teach me stuff, man, <laughs> right? I, mm. I want to learn how to throw somebody. I want to learn how to choke somebody. And you're going to have a little bit more of a senior person who's done it before, kind of showing you how to do that. And then above them might be the senpais who are looking over a couple of different groups, making sure they're doing what they're supposed to and they're executing. And then you've got the chief instructor who's looking over the entire class, thinking about who needs to work with who, what ranks are tests are coming up, who needs work on what things. So again, a very, very much of a hierarchy like it would be in the military. All right. Fantastic. You know, moving on, one of the things that I really, I've had a lot of questions on and we haven't covered that much is what exactly are the senpai? That's a question I, as a senpai, get a lot. I know that you've had this over the year. One of my students, this is a long time ago, actually said, are you just a junior black belt? <laughs> Interesting. Senpai is uh, a term that basically just means a senior, a senior person. So if you were thinking about maybe going to a military academy, right, you would go in there and the, the seniors, who would also be seniors in college, right, they're in the academy, they're going to tell you what to do, enforce the rules. They're really going to crack the whip and make sure that the new people, you know, the newbies coming in are going to get in line, do what they're supposed to do, etc. And that's no different than what a senpai does in a dojo. 
they've been a student, they've gone through, they've earned their black belt, and then they have some responsibility for the people below them. Responsibility to make sure that they follow the etiquette, that they learn correctly, that they stay safe, that they follow the rules, but also the responsibility to answer questions. Because I will tell you, I remember being a student and there were senpais in the school and then there was the, the sensei or the head instructor. If I had a question, I didn't always go to the sensei first because I didn't want to feel stupid. Like, you know, I know you told me this 7,000 times, but I can't remember it. And I would kind of go to that intermediary, right? I'd go to that senpai who still would probably smack me on the side of the head and say, you idiot, why didn't you learn it the first thousand times? But at least it wasn't right to the head person, right? It was to that intermediary. So there is some responsibility for that, for that senpai to, to do that. There's no such thing as a junior black belt in real martial arts. I mean, if, if people are, you know, I've heard of probationary black belts and all mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. That's just a way to rake in more money into your dojo, right? Keep people paying. It's like, if you get your black belt, you're a black belt. As far as I'm concerned, if you've passed that test, you you have all the rights and privileges. It's just that you're the black belts that aren't the headmasters of that school, and you're there to really enforce the disciplines of the school. Excellent. Needless to say, that person who uh, stayed the junior black belt thing had a lot of fun in Randori that night. <laughs> Good. Well, I hope he, uh, he understood the definition after that. Absolutely. I think it was fairly clear. Going back in history, too, can you tell me a little bit about what the role of the senpai was to say the sensei from a protection perspective i know in um the time of the samurai they were somewhat of the protector correct they were and if we were in a clan there would probably be a couple of senseis in the way that we think about it right knowing that the japanese word for teacher is sensei and they would have been probably the sword sensei probably did swords and knives it was probably somebody that was really good at at sphere and then there was somebody who was probably pretty good at unarmed uh, combat and they would have been called senseis in the context of hey we're going to get the group together and we're going to teach you some stuff and we're going to practice it but the person who was really in charge was the military leader right that clan leader that or that shogun or that more senior person the senpais were less attached to what was being taught by the senseis in those practice sessions and much more attached to being the protector of the leader of the overall samurai mm-hmm. clan, right? He was kind of the second in command, still very much like a traditional senpai is in a dojo today, right? He's, he's sort of the disciplinarian, but he's, he's the protector. He's that barrier in between the clan leader and everybody else. And the reason that role existed is Although everybody said, hey, you know, we're loyal to our clan leader and we're going to do anything they ask us to do. Well, human nature leads to jealousy and greed and other things. And more often than not, the person that was going to end up attacking the clan leader was from within his own clan, probably not from some other clan. You know, that would happen on the battlefield. But there needed to be this person that really made sure that person was protected at at all times. Uh, And so that was a big piece of that role back in the day. Excellent. And I believe you and I talked about this before. Isn't the positioning of where the senpai actually sat in the traditional dojo was strategic? It was. It absolutely is. A lot of people don't know this because when they go to a, let's say, a jujitsu dojo, all they're practicing is the unarmed arts, right? They're not practicing the other jutsus that go along with it, like sword. If you're sitting down in a room and you're not you're not wearing your long sword because they would have put that to the side, but they would probably have their wakazashi with them or on them and their tanto, and you keep it on your left hand side, right? And so if you were to draw that weapon, the blade would come out from left to right. Anybody that's sitting on your left would be cut down first. It's one of those two-sided coins where 
your most trusted people sit to your left because when they draw their weapons, they're able to cut down the most junior people first, right? <laughs> However, it's the same thing. They're on my left because they're also the most skilled people in the group and really pose the greatest danger. So in any military organization, there's this two-sided coin of complete trust of my life with the people that I you know, go to war with. At the same time, there's a realization that they're also the most dangerous people around me. That's really why it was. Um, you know, it's, it's incorrect, and I'm not going to pick on any, any school in particular, but from a historical perspective, it's incorrect for the senpai to be sitting in a row directly in front of the sensei. That's really not how it would have been done. They would actually sit in a row that was sort of vertical to the sensei on, on his left-hand side, and then the rest of the class would have sat horizontally facing forward. And so they were able to keep their eye on the sensei and the eye on the students at the same time from that position. And if anybody were to break etiquette or do something dangerous, they would be able to jump up and throw themselves in between the attacker and the, and the clan leader. All right, fantastic. I wanted to kind of go a little bit in a different direction on some of this. Students obviously rank top to bottom, right? You've got your younger white belts all the way up to your more senior brown belts. Now, tell me about the ways you expect them to behave as they mature through the levels. That's a really great question. You know, I think there's an expectation and, a, and some fear associated with it when a new student walks into the dojo. They kind of know that there's going to be some etiquette. I mean, you know, we've all seen the movies and been on the internet, right? So we know there's going to be some etiquette. We're not entirely sure what it's going to be as a new student. You know, we, we know we're probably going to bow and that kind of thing, but we don't know what it is. And so from an instructor standpoint, I have no expectation whatsoever that they know what any of this is, right? I, they're going to come in a bumbling idiot just like I did when I joined my first dojo. And we're going to, we're going to teach them from day one. We're going to show them what to do and they're going to, they're going to make mistakes. But then the longer that they're there, the more expectation I think the black belt should have of the more junior students because they've been there longer. They've practiced it longer. They've seen it. They should become better and better at the formalities and the etiquette that exists uh, in the dojo. So by the time that somebody is a brown belt, they could make the same small mistake that the new guy walking in the door did. But from my standpoint, it would be much more egregious because they've been there for so long. They've been talked about this for so long. They even have responsibilities for making sure that other people act correctly, that when they don't, I think that's a bigger, that's a bigger crime, I guess, in, in air quotes, right? That's, that's a bigger mistake than somebody that's a, a more junior person. And again, this goes back to the fact that as you learn a martial art, you become more and more of a dangerous person, right? You have these skill sets that can injure and kill other people. So there's a huge amount of responsibility that comes with that. And that responsibility is reflected in your ability to have attention to detail, the correct etiquette, saying, doing the right things in, in that dojo atmosphere. Understood. Excellent. You mentioned something in there. It kind of leads me to the next question always get this, and I, I know you've heard it, I know Shree's heard it, why all the bowing? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a really great question. So I would say if you went into a boxing school, that's a Western martial art, right, boxing, or you went into a wrestling, a collegiate wrestling hall or, or training hall or something like that, when people walked into the room, there is absolutely no question in my mind that they would shake hands before they engaged in, you know, whatever activity or they'd bump fists or, or whatever. They would in some way defer to, you know, the coach 
the head coach, they'd sit and they'd listen to him or, you know, the coach would say, Hey, take a knee. And everybody would take a knee and listen to what that person had to say. And, you know, sometimes they'd all, you know, yell some kind of school motto or something when the coach is done talking or whatever. And, and we don't have any problem understanding that because it's part of the Western culture. So we bring in literally the exact equivalence of that from Japan. And people can find that strange because in Western culture, bowing has a different connotation. You know, it has religious connotation or subservient connotation or whatever that it doesn't really hold in the Japanese culture. So essentially when they come in and they bow to each other, they're like fist bumping or or, or handshaking. When they bow to the instructor, it's, you know, and they sit in seiza, it's the same thing as telling your team to take a knee. And when we say the things at the beginning, bow to the uh, kamiza, but, you know, bow to the instructor, it's the same thing as saying like, go Panthers or, or whatever. It's, mm-hmm. it's a very uh, equivalent thing. So it really shouldn't be seen as how Western people think about it as being having a religious connotation or a subservient connotation. It's simply the, the etiquette for that, for that specific group. All right. Bringing back, actually, in previous podcasts, you mentioned that the old hanbu was very much patterned after traditional Japanese dojo. And our South Windsor establishment, very similar, right? The JSA, very much like that. Why did you go this route? And how do you feel the traditions of, say, 2,000 years ago are important in training today? Well, I went that route because I had had uh, my dojo in several commercial locations over a decade or so before I did the traditional dojo thing. And we certainly always had the traditions and we wore the uniforms and, you know, used the language and everything, but we were in a a commercial space. And I had always felt that you had to be very careful in that environment because you have to make decisions to keep the business going essentially. And sometimes those decisions can be negative towards other decisions that you would make about how you wanted to train. So it was a very careful balance. I think I did it pretty well, but that pressure was always there, right? So I wanted to say, okay, if I didn't have to do that, right, if I really just built a Mm -hmm. dojo on my property, could I just train the way I wanted to train people and not really have to worry about all that other stuff, right? Can I just bring people in, tell them, listen, this is how it's going to be. It's going to be really hard. You got to train your ass off. And if you don't, you're just not going to make it right. We're either going to ask you to leave or you're just going to leave on your own because there was no concern that I needed to have any specific amount of students or anything. I didn't care if it was just one other guy that came in. Right. And we always had a very small group. So that was one piece of it. Uh, The second piece of it is kind of like being a Spartan. Right. I mean, the, the, the Spartans and we use that term today to mean, you know, without a lot of comforts. There's something to be said about people that go through situations like that together, like I'm thinking back to like basic training or, you know, when I was in the military, when you go through hardship together, it really creates bonds and an understanding that is only within that group. It's very hard for people outside of that group to understand that. So as you well remember, we had no air conditioning, we had no heat, it was freezing in the winter, it was boiling in the summer, there were bugs. I think at one point, like, we had a rat or something die in the wall and it smelled and like, I mean, it was ridiculous. Mm -hmm. You know, people would go outside and splash their head with a hose or go around the back and puke in the bushes. I mean, it was a really Spartan atmosphere that was, you know, decorated kind of like a Japanese, you know, uh, traditional dojo, but it was more about that atmosphere of it was difficult. It was uncomfortable. We're all going through it together. Nobody gets a break. Nobody gets it easy. And, and that really, created a certain group of people of which you're a part that you know went through that and now looks at how martial arts are taught differently than people that their entire time was in a very commercial you get 400 belts and stripes and trophies and birthday parties kind of environment 
All right. I can, and you know what, having spent 10 years in that little house of horrors <laughs> and loving every minute of it. And, you know, I remember the Ford rolls in the snow. Oh yeah. Going out for a jog and your bare feet in the snow and lots of the other fun things we did. Sure. It, it definitely does mold you a certain way. The thing that I'm also interested in is it was such a hard place, but I think the formality helped you, right? Because it, it was very rigid and structured and there was an expectation because of that formality that went along with the hardness. Sure. I, I think when you create a very difficult environment and you don't have a specific set of rules, actions, activities, formalities, whatever you want to call them, people will tend to just do and react to everything however however they feel like, right? You know, this is uncomfortable. It's too hot. I'm, I'm not going to you know, I'm not going to wear, wear my gi top or, you know, they just make their own decisions for whatever they think is best for them. And, you know, the whole concept of being able to defend yourself and defend people that are important to you is that it's not all about what's best for you. Sometimes it's just about what's best. Those type of formalities made you have the exact same experience as everybody in that room. Everybody experienced it the same way because of those formalities. So I think it was incredibly important to drive yourself to a place where, you know, you were past discomfort or past even thinking you were going to get out of this discomfort, but it was a method to deal with the discomfort. And now, you know, you know, those things apply in other parts of your life, in your, in your fitness program, in how you interact in your, your business life. You know, you realize the importance of when things get difficult, a structure is what helps you get through that. Agreed. I think also having gone through, having that formality, helps you deal with that hardship too, right? It certainly does. Because, I mean, I, I've had plenty of days of work and going, this is not that bad. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Where everybody else around you is like crying and you're like, oh, come on now. Exactly. And I'll go around seven o'clock tonight. It might be bad, but this is <laughs> not that bad. So going down that route, traditional versus non-formal, right? We see a lot of different things going on at schools. And this kind of goes back to why all the bowing question, because somebody said, why don't we just get into this? So you see different levels of formalities, say Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, MMA schools, and some of the others. Can you describe some of the differences you've seen from your all the years you've spent in Jiu-Jitsu and just kind of where you think people gravitate? Why would they gravitate to the formal versus other? Yeah. Um, so that's a really good question. Let me first say that I've had the opportunity, besides all the great instructors I've had of traditional and Japanese jiu-jitsu and military combatives and, and those type of things, I, I've also had the opportunity to train with a couple of the best Brazilian jiu-jitsu instructors. And, you know, I, I'll refer to some time that I trained with Hicks and Gracie at his dojo in California. Uh, that was absolutely completely strict with all the formalities you would see anywhere else. They were very, uh, when I, when I asked permission to go there, they were very open and said, listen, you're going to come in here. We don't want to have a gi that has any patches on it. We don't want to have any, you know, any of those big advertising type of things. Everybody that's new here will wear a white belt. We line up at the beginning according to rank. It was very, very similar to what we do in traditional. So I don't want to just bucket like Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu or MMA, you know, just saying, hey, they're all completely informal because that's that's not Agreed. true. However, what I do think happened is as it took on more and more of a sportive aspect in those dojos that focus on sportive aspect, because I, I will say that a couple of the original Gracie dojos um, still do not focus on that. They have a very extensive self-defense class and they do have the sportive part too, but there are dojos that are just, they're just sport. And so 
I think what happened is, again, it it took on that Western feel where people kind of wandered in and out. It was more like having a gym membership. You kind of come in and work out when you want. Yeah, there was an instructor there, but that would be more like having like a personal trainer at the gym, right? The guy's going to come and he's going to show me how to do my bench press better or going to give me some kind of split routine or or whatever, right? But it's not like I'm looking at that guy like that's what I want to be. I'm just looking at it as somebody who can help me. It's a little self-centered, I know, but that's a very Western culture type of thing. I think some of the dojos just kind of said, we're, we're a sport group and we act like we're a sport group. We're not really concerned that somebody's going to push it against a wall and put a gun against the back of our head. That's not what we're really focused on. What I'm focused on is I'm standing across a, a mat from this guy and we're about to go and we're going to, you know, we're going to grapple and somebody's going to get points and they're going to win and I'm going to leave with a leave with a trophy and I'm going to be ranked certain level in the country of my grappling skills. And like, that's a whole different thing. Right. When you're in a self-defense traditional dojo, that is what it's focused on. It's self-defense. I'm not getting a trophy. Nobody's going to even really know what I do here or let, you know, let alone understand it. I hope I never have to use it. When I get out there, I'm talking about somebody's dragging my kid into a car or somebody just clocked me from behind and now they're sitting on my chest with a knife to my throat. Like I'm talking about that stuff. I'm not standing across the mat from somebody hoping that we have a great grappling match. So it's a whole different attitude. Um, And so that's why I think there are differences in the formalities. The closer you get to like death is going to happen, right? Or severe injury and it's only going to be done because I'm defending myself or the people that matter to me. um, You're going to act in a certain way. When you're like, hey, I'm training for a competition, and it's going to be a blast and I'm going to, you know, get out there with all my grappling buddies and, you know, we're going to get a trophy and that kind of stuff. That's a whole different kind of mentality. Not that it's wrong. It's just that it's a totally separate, separate mentality. So if you're in a group of people that's going to do that, they're probably going to act that way a little bit less formal, a little more chilled, a little more like I'm hanging out with my friends and we're having a good time. And I've got a coach as opposed to a traditional dojo where I have instructors, a hierarchy, a sensei an expectation of, of uh, etiquette because this stuff is extremely dangerous. You know, I'm building on that a little bit. Why do you think somebody might choose the formal over maybe the other formats? I know for me, it's my military background. Coming from a military family, I like the structure. It works well. It's it's the same as when in boot camp, when I was actually in my, I loved boot camp because it had, they gave you all the answers. Right. Walk this way, turn here, go right, go left. It was if you understand it, it's actually great. Being in the military, same thing, right? It's if you get the structure and you embrace that kind of thing, you really excel at it. I, I agree. And I think structure is is really what attracts um, the people that are attracted to it. There's a formal plan for how you're going to learn, right? There's step one, step two, step three. Mm-hmm. There is a hierarchy of people that reflect certain levels of knowledge. It's going to be difficult and they're going to help me through that, that difficulty. And there also has to be a certain way that you think about yourself. I think you have to be secure enough with yourself to say that I'm going to spend a lot of time and I'm going to spend a lot of money and I'm going to blood, sweat and tears. And at the end of it, I, I don't get a trophy, mm-hmm. right? You know, maybe I get a piece of paper that goes on my wall and it's written in another language. Nobody knows what it says. And, you know, maybe within that group, somebody's going to recognize me for my success, but that's pretty much it. So you have to have a certain mentality to understand that there is value to that that there isn't some kind of external shiny thing that tells the world that you're great at what you do, but that you are very secure and you know it in your head. You know, hey, if 
shit hits the fan or if I have to make it happen, it's going to, it's going to happen. And knowing that we're getting down to the bottom of the half hour, I just want to kind of put something, a question to you, Xi'an. It's knowing that we have a number of students and followers out there listening to the podcast series. What are your expectations given the level of formality at Kobukai Jiu-Jitsu that you, you know, how do you expect them to present themselves not only inside, but outside the dojo atmosphere? Good question. First of all, about the podcast. I mean, the main reason that we're doing this, and, and I have to say, uh, thank Sri for this because, you know, Sri was like, hey, I, I think we have a lot of things that I'd love to capture forever for posterity. You know, the conversations that he had heard you and me talking about and other senpais and senseis and myself, you know, they, they happen and then they're gone. And this was a good way to capture all of, all of those type of conversations. And also it was mainly for the students. So, you know, it's just this extra thing, like you mentioned uh, earlier that, you know, a student besides their training in the dojo, you know, maybe when they're driving to work or they're home or, you know, they're relaxing, they can, they can still sort of, I guess you'd call it study, right? They're, they can still be part of that group and, and learn history and, and learn things about, you know, techniques and, and those, those sort of things. So that's the first part. The second part is how should these students represent the dojo, represent themselves? We're just trying to make better people. That's really what the whole goal is. I want people to come in one way and leave another. And, and what I want them to leave as is more fit, more secure with themselves, uh, having a lot of self-confidence, I want them to understand that they can do things that are far more difficult than they ever thought they possibly could so that the rest of the quote unquote difficult things in their life begin to look easy. I want them to give of themselves, right? Because as you move up from, through the ranks, you're helping those below you. So I want them to learn to do that. I want them to learn to lead. Leading to me is looking in front of you, understanding something is going to be dangerous or extremely difficult, or all eyes are going to be you, and still taking that step forward and say, you know what, if I do it, other people are going to do it, so I'm going to do it. And I want people to you know, start understanding that, that type of leadership. And then how I want them to act, I want them to represent what we are trying to represent in the dojo, that there is a way to act, and there is a, a morality in the world, and there is a way to speak professionally. And that you should learn things for your whole life and never think that you know everything. And you want to be the best that you can possibly be, whatever that is for you. You want to strive for that that superlative for yourself. So to be able to act that way, speak that way, be confident in that way is, is really what I'm hoping for, for all the students and instructors uh, at Kobukai when, when they're in the dojo and outside the dojo. All right. Fantastic. I would say also for our listeners, if you Enjoy the ride, <laughs> right? Absolutely. It, it's it, it's an incredible journey having been now, gosh, what, 13, 14 years. It only gets better. So, you know, go out there, train hard, apply yourself when you're in the dojo and outside. But when you're there, be there and get every last bit out of it that you possibly can. Absolutely. I, I couldn't have said it better myself. So, you know, I, I definitely want to let everybody know who's listening. Um, you know, if you get a chance to train with Senpai Richards, do so. He has very much focused on how the techniques should be done. You know, he's a, he's a very good technician. So you're really going to be able to have your questions answered about exactly how to do something. He also very much like me is a realist. Um, we would, you know, not make our instructors instructors if they weren't that, you know, he's not there to tell you about the magical, mystical things of the martial arts, right? He's there to tell you this is a warrior art 
This is what you're going to face. This is the reality of what's going to happen. And this is how you have to react to it. And I think that's really key for all of our students. So students, if you're listening out there and you get a chance to go work out with uh, Senpai Chris at any of our, our dojos, do so. Listen, learn, enjoy the pain, which you will surely feel, but learn something, <laughs> learn something from it. Uh, thank you, Shian. You are and welcome. And Shri, I don't have any more questions, so I'm going to toss it back to you, sir. Thank you very much, Senpai Richards. Great discussion, uh, great questions. Shihan, I have just one question to, to ask. Sure. Can anybody do this, or does it take a certain type of individual to either get on board, learn, and, and excel at this, or can anybody figure it out? Anybody can do this. Absolutely anybody can do this. The only thing that it takes is tenacity. You have to say in your head, I am not going to stop. I am not going to give up. I don't care if this takes me 30 years. You know, I am going to show up and I'm just going to keep doing this. I'm not judging myself against anybody else. I don't care if somebody got their black belt in four years and it takes me seven years or whatever. That's not even the reason why I'm here. The reason why I'm in this dojo is, you know, to make myself a stronger, better version of myself, right? And and so if you have that tenacity, if you can just keep doing it, and I'm not going to give anybody an excuse for that. I've been doing this for 35 years, right? I got my sore joints and all these other things and I'm not stopping. So I'm, you know, somebody that's complaining about it, you know, two or three years in, I'm, I'm just kind of laughing, right? Yeah, I know it's hard. Been there. So you just got to have that tenacity. You got to keep showing up and you got to just keep trying as hard as you can because the value you get isn't the belt that we give you or the diploma. The value you get is the time that you put in to learn things about yourself that you never knew were there. Anybody of any size, any strength, if they just stick with it and they just go at it 100% every single time, they're going to get there, wherever that there is for them. Yeah, they'll probably get their ranks and their belts and their diplomas and all that kind of stuff. And that's great. It's a great achievement. But, you know, every black belt will tell you, you know, okay, yeah, that happened four or five years in. But, you know, I've been around for another 10, 15 years. And why is that? Right. Nobody's given me any more, you know, awards. I'm here because I want to continue to be a better version of me. And also because I realize, you know, we live in a violent world and I got to I got to keep my my skills honed. Right. Because I'm a warrior at heart. So if you can be that kind of person, if you can force yourself to do it, or if you can let someone else like Senpai Chris force you to do it, then then I think you'll make it. Absolutely think you make it. So Sri, thanks. That was an absolutely fantastic question. For the people that are listening, I want to tell you, we've, we've talked a lot about the dojo and a lot about history. We've talked about military combatives, uh, a lot of great subjects out there. Um, but I also want to tell you, we're going to talk about some some technical stuff too. In a couple of our future podcasts, I think we're going to pick out some positions and some some specific techniques, and we're going to talk about the, the details of them and the versatility of them. So don't miss those too. You know, if you're having problems with your triangle choke, or you know, you're always getting rolled out of mount, or you know, you, you can't really get a guard armbar very well, or your kubanagi atoshi just you know doesn't work against big people, whatever it may be, stick around, listen to these podcasts. We're going to cover a lot of that stuff in the future. 